in 2011, I started meeting with her every week, you know, on Tuesday at 2.30. And we would sit and talk and I would ask her questions and she'd tell stories and I'd work on her because by then I was already a certified massage therapist, already did energy work or I did plant work and all sorts of things. Um, I had a human services degree with counseling and so I'd work on her. And finally, after a year, I'm like, Rita, <laughs> how, do, like, how do I get certified as a traditional healer? Mm -hmm. And she just looked at me and she laughed and she laughed <laughs> and she laughed. And she's, you know, a little impish woman. And she's like, you already are. I knew you were the first time I met you. <laughs> oh, that's great. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> that was Clinkett traditional healer, Mita DeWitt. When Mita was in her early 20s, she began her journey as a traditional healer. She was pursuing a degree in nursing when she says that spirit had other plans for her. She was having health events that couldn't be explained by Western medicine, so she sought and found answers in holistic medicine. She says that people have a tendency to think of traditional healing as antiquated or obsolete. However, traditional healers of the past and the present are in constant pursuit of knowledge and understanding. And for over 10,000 years, they have focused on a culture of wellness that promotes mental, physical, and emotional health. So here she is, Mita DeWitt. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Uh, my English name is Mita Dewitt. My Klinket names are Kat Klat and Zetzinak. My adopted Inubak name is Tigigaluk, and my adopted Cree name is Boss Eagle Spirit Woman. My family comes from Wrangell and Prince of Wales Island and Yakutat and also the Northwest Coast. A family that's Taltan from the BC area and family that comes from Washington and Oregon as well. And I am predominant, my identity is predominantly Shingat. Uh, however, I'm also have some Haida, like I said, Taltan. Uh, some distant relation to Nez Pierce or dis, you know, distant descendant, and also a lot of Scottish. I didn't actually realize how much, but we had our DNA done, and um, I'm a lot more Scottish than I had ever realized that I might be. So it's fun to understand how we relate. And I'm calling in from the Dinah Lance in Anchorage, Alaska, and I uh, live here with my fiance and. We have eight children between us. That's great. Can you explain what traditional healing means to you? Yeah. So um, I, I'm glad that you personalized it because there's like the academic or the anthropologic terms of traditional healing. And uh, for me, because it's something that I was raised with and had to kind of come into this identity it has the concept of transformation uh, through traditional values and practices. Mm -hmm. So when people start talking about decolonization or healing communities or, um, you know, 
rematriating culture and subsistence. I think it's, in my mind, it's inclusive, right? And part of the challenge with translating or people connecting to this is they think of the word as traditional, as something that's past tense. And for us, our traditional healers were dynamic in their pursuit of knowledge and understanding. And it was a lifelong pursuit of growth. And also the concept in healing in Western terms is a like static goal or measures that you obtain from the doctor. But traditionally, healing was, again, something that was a consistent pursuit that you engaged in on a daily basis mm -hmm. and you transformed. And so that healing and that transformation of the physical body the emotional body, the spiritual body, and the mental body, you know, healing may look very different when you're five years old, 25 years old, or 50 years old, right? Um, so it's more of a concept of that uh, bringing back who we are as Indigenous people and elevating our traditional practices and values into accessible ways of interaction with the world today so that we can continually improve and grow as individuals and communities. Yeah. And I, I like what you said about physical, spiritual, and mental health, because I think that with more traditional medicine, a lot of the time it is not so much proactive as it is reactive to the illness that you already have. Whereas with this traditional healing, it seems like if you're actively thinking about your physical, spiritual, and mental health, then you're already in the realm of being proactive. Yes. Yes. And there's, I mean, there's definitely, you know, things that are uh, proactive and reactive and, and I don't want to, you know, take away anybody's, you know, healing journey because we're saying, oh, you're being reactive because sometimes we don't have any other option, right? We didn't know something was wrong in the first mm -hmm. place. Uh, but a lot of traditional healing is proactive. And that's when we get into that conversation of like our culture is a culture of wellness. And we have over 10,000 years of living in this environment and employing best practices and observing our communities and people over generations of periods of time. And so part of the challenge with the Western system is it's it's transient in nature. And there is, uh, you know, they call like institutional memory. So when somebody leaves a business, you lose that institutional memory, right? And so it has this kind of amnesia effect when there's that moving or separation consistently. And so when you're looking at a traditional community, you may have a, you know, a hundred to a couple thousand people who've lived in the same space for a thousand years, right? So you're going to know what activities are going to promote wellness. And then they become, become part of a protocol, part of the culture and part of the way to just to do things the right way. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, and that's when it gets kind of tricky when you start translating spirituality because there's this compartmentalization that happens in 
Um, and I keep saying Western terms, right, because it helps to have a juxtaposition so you can understand kind of this difference from where we're operating now to this other concept uh, or the primary concept that we're trying to relate to the major major groups of people. But spirituality is not separate. You know, spirituality is a relationship with creator. And in that relationship, your physical body is sacred. And so you're going to do things that honors that sacred gift that is the physical body. And in the process of honoring that sacred gift and honoring the gift of life and all those around you, you're going to create health and wellness because that's the goal as an individual and as a group of people. So that's like that kind of proactive concept. It's not that you go to the gym for 30 minutes each week. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's great that people do, but if you're, you know, prioritizing using your own locomotion, you know, riding bikes or walking or, or doing that to uh, reduce your effect, you know, in your carbon footprint, it's going to improve your health and wellness as a byproduct, right? Or as a, an aligned benefit to this process. And so it did, you know, there are reactive circumstances where there's emergency medicine, you know, somebody might have um, gotten food poisoning or broken a bone or, you know, had a a health event that they didn't know was coming. And so then that has application that sometimes people can connect more with in the Western system because you say, oh, you know, my, my shoulder's out of place. And so they come in and you do massage and some bone manipulation in their shoulders set and they can connect that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that there's both aspects, but traditional healing does focus on the proactive uh, aspect. I also think that Western medicine is very much rooted in, in logic. And I think that logic doesn't always consider spirituality. So when you're talking about a culture of wellness that has been around for over 10,000 years and it has worked for over 10,000 years, I think that that Western medicine can kind of butt heads with that sometimes. Yes, there. Well, it can. However, I actually enjoy Western medicine in the education uh, on Western medicine. So I, my, some of my training actually is I went to through a uh, bachelor's science of nursing program and I almost completed it, but I actually spirit had an intervention and said, you know, this isn't your path. Your path is to be a traditional healer mm-hmm. and Western medicine does like to view logic, but through measurable means, Right. Traditional medicine also works through logic and the measurable means are different. So they actually are more similar in some ways than they are different. And the issue is that Western medicine hasn't figured out how to measure spirit, right? How do you, Mm -hmm. how do you measure creator? Um, And so it's kind of this interesting process because they can't measure it, they cut. They don't want to acknowledge it in, in a lot of places. But when you start getting into 
deeper understanding of medicine and how the body works and how humans work in a holistic aspect, then you actually do see that spiritual practices are beneficial in the physical and mental and emotional states as well. So, you know, they started, um, instead of, you know, measuring is spirit there and how much spirit is there, they started looking at it differently. And they're like, okay, if somebody is meditating and praying and focusing on gratitude, then it helps to improve their mental health experience. So their qualitative experience goes up because they feel more positive and reduce effects of um, negative emotions. And what it does is it, our brain, right, is elastic. And it's if you're focusing on gratitude and positive aspects of life and what you do have, then your brain starts to create new connections. And the longer that you do that, those connections become more solidified, stronger, and have long-term hardwired pathways in there. Mm -hmm. And then the propensity for negativity, those brain synapses start getting paired away, right? They're pruned away. Mm -hmm. And we also know that your mindset and your perception and how you choose to believe about things does affect your physical health as well. And there's the effects of telling your body what to do because it is a biomechanical interface, right? Um, but then there's the release of positive hormones, good hormones. And if you're in gratitude, you're going to interact with your medications or your physical therapy or the things that you have to do to be well in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's people who are advanced in their fields of medicine who are starting to see this. And so the difference isn't that one's based on logic or not based on logic. It's just that the logical measurements for Western medicine are still very young. Um, they're not always based in reality because of the separation of facts and systems. And so it just has that, that growing pain, right? Um, people like to say 200 years ago, they were injecting mercury into people, right? <laughs> so <laughs> medicine's come a long ways. And I think that the more we have these conversations with people who are willing to listen to each other and not just listen, but are choosing to understand that medicine in itself will advance. So earlier you said, is spirit there? What did you mean by that? Well, depending on which uh, belief system that you engage in, you're going to have different language for it, right? So in the Judeo-Christian traditions, they're going to say God. So God is uh, omnipresent, right? So traditional beliefs is that there is God, there is creator, and creator exists in all things. It is also omnipresent. Mm -hmm. um, and I use the word spirit because it you know, it denotes this higher power without giving it one term that other people may not identify with. Um, and so, you know, in our household, we have uh, traditional clinket beliefs and also Catholicism. And so we do a lot of work to understand each other because our their interface uh, between like clinket belief systems and Christian belief systems were compatible. Um, and so 
you know, you can choose to understand the other person or you can choose not to understand the other person. And so when I'm talking about spirit, I'm talking about, you know, that omnipresent life force energy that flows through all things. Mm -hmm. And we as humans, we have physical bodies that are our, you know, temples or houses for our spiritual self. And we're going, we're on a spiritual journey and we need to treat ourselves in a way that, um, honors that that gift can you give me some past or historical examples of traditional healing that stick out to you um oh gosh well i mean that's a really large term so what do you mean by historical examples do you mean like um the use of the history of and in the since colonization and before colonization? Yeah, I think maybe one of both. Okay. <laughs> oh, I, I got one. I got a really good one. I just thought of one. Um, so my uh, grandmother it told me a story about Tilly Paul Tamarie and her mother. So her mother was married to a Scottish fur trader and they were down on the West Coast, and the mom had gotten TB. She contracted it, and you know, back then especially, it was a terminal disease. Um, so my it would be like my great 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 grandmother. She had two daughters, Tilly Paul, and then uh, Tilly's sister, and I forget her name. Forgive me. And Kinnan was the father, he was going to send the two girls to a boarding school in England because he couldn't care for them by himself. He couldn't be a single dad and a, and a trapper traipsing the wilds, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, her mother was very wealthy. She had her own large seagoing canoe and her own servants and staff. And uh, she took the canoe with her staff and the two girls, and they traveled up the West Coast. They stole away in the night, and they traveled at night, so that way um, anybody who would take advantage of them would, you know, wouldn't see them. So they basically came up the coast just traveling at night and staying on the shores during the day. And they got up here, and she went to her Uncle Snook, who was a chief and he had Squindy, who was the medicine person for the clan attend to uh, Tilly Paul's mother because she had TB and actually by then Tilly had it as well and so Squindy doctored on uh, my great 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 grandma and Tilly who is also my great 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 grandma right and he used traditional medicine. He was an Icht and he, he cured them. And I'm sure they were still carriers, but they were no longer displaying any effects of the TB. And then when Tilly Paul was an adult, so she was actually the first Alaska Native missionary and she helped start the Alaska Native Brotherhood and the Alaska Native Sisterhood. And she was a civil rights leader. Her son was William Paul who his clinket name was Schwindy after the medicine person who had doctored her when she was little. And this story is kind of interesting because it repeats itself a little bit. So my grandma, Matilda, um, 
well, my great great grandma, Matilda Jones. So that's actually Chief Shake's daughter. So it'd be Tilly Paul's daughter in law. Mm-hmm. Um, and my great my grandmother, Marion DeWitt, when she was four, her and her mom had TV, right? So we again in my uh, line to the mother and daughter had TV again. And so Tilly Paul Tamari had uh, training as a nurse and taking care of people in the church. And so she had uh, Tilly Jones and Marion at her house and took care of them in like the more Western style of nursing. But then little grandma, who was a nicht and medicine woman, uh, Ajit, she she was only like, she was tiny. They called her little grandma because she was like four foot nine or something crazy. But she was pretty, um, she was pretty magical, you know, the stories in the family that I get to hear. Mm-hmm. So she used Indian medicine and plants and Indian doctoring. And between Tilly Paul and little grandma Ajit, they doctored on Tilly Jones and Marion and healed them from TB. And so my grandmother um, her mother actually lived into her 90s, and my grandmother just passed a few years ago, and she was 94. And so that's one of the the powerful stories that I love hearing, because even to this day, you know, TB is still difficult to treat. Um, and once people have it, they have it, you know, throughout. It still resides in their body for their whole lifetime. So, mm-hmm. Do you remember the the first time that you heard about or encountered traditional healing and then maybe what effect that had on you um well so i um well there's a my birth story is pretty powerful um my midwife was alicia roberts and there's a clinic named after her in uh, kowak she was the community health aide and a traditional healer and a traditional midwife. So it used to be that people had to fly from uh, communities into the hub hub village of Ketchikan to have their babies. Mm-hmm. And my mom was living in Kowak and she, um, she was having some Braxton Hicks contractions and she flew over to Ketchikan and they said, oh, you're fine. You know, go back home. You're not actually in labor. So she flew back to Kluwak and was at home and she um, continued to have contractions and, and she went actually into labor. And back then, I don't think she had a phone or anything, but she walked two miles in labor to uh, Alicia Roberts' house. And I got to actually hear this story. I heard it from my mom when I was little. It was very dramatic in my mom's telling, but her experience was dramatic as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to hear it as an adult, like five years ago, from Alicia Roberts herself. And it, it's profound from both aspects to hear it. So my mom went to Alicia's house, and Alicia brought her in and didn't send her away and so alicia said that normally what she would do is she'd go to people's houses and birth the baby so i was actually the only one to be birthed in her house and her house is across from totem park so when she showed me her medicine room uh and you look out the window there's all those totem poles right 
and her medicine room is full of thank you cards and tokens of appreciation and dried plants and it's this little tiny room and it's just full of uh, love and gratitude from the people that she served her whole life and there's this like little tiny twin bed and she's like see right there that's where you're born <laughs> <laughs> um and so in the story you know my mom when she she tells her side of it you know it was very difficult labor and she was pushing and pushing and uh in the middle of it Alicia Roberts tells her, you need to, you need to stop pushing. She's like, I can't stop pushing. And she's like, you need to stop pushing or you're going to kill your baby. And so she said, immediately everything stopped in her whole body. Right. She almost sucked me back in. Um, <laughs> in, in her story, Alicia, you know, she gets in there and she unwraps the cord. I had the cord wrapped uh, multiple times around my neck and she pulls me out and my mom says blue, purple. Right. And, and Alicia she blew on her hands and rubbed them together and prayed and prayed and, and just like rubbed me and massaged me and like blew life into me and, um, and brought me back because I, uh, I, from, you know, visually I was limp. I was not living. And so Alicia had brought me back and and so that was like this profound story, right? Mm -hmm. And I, so I talked to I'm talking to Alicia, and she's so funny because she recounts how her husband had just mopped that day, and she's like, "Oh, you know, men when they clean house, it's like a big deal." <laughs> and, he, and she said he was so worried that her water was going to break all over his new clean floor. <laughs> <laughs> she she says that my mom she couldn't when she got there she couldn't walk anymore she said oh and everybody everybody had to grab one arm and one leg and we all had to carry her into the room <laughs> and so I'm just getting these visuals right and uh yeah. that they had to group carry my mom and and so I'm like okay well what about this part and she remembers because I was the only one born in her house right so it's really cool and uh, she's like, you know, we, we watched your mom. And she said, the elders in the community, they watched her and they sure hoped you were you were who you were supposed to be and you were going to gonna make it. And, um, and I was like, oh, that's cool. And she's like, yeah, she's like, your, your cord was wrapped. And, and I was like, well, you know, was I blue gray and, and limp and lifeless? She's like, oh, yeah, but, you know, you don't worry about those things at the moment. And I was like, really? And I'm just kind of like, and she's like, she looks at me and she's like, honey, when stuff like that happens, you just got to work hard and pray harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, I, I mean, that that story sticks out with me quite a bit. And when I was little, I, you know, was in Kowak and just got to run around and be little. And then uh, my aunties tried to keep me in and give me proper training because training usually starts at seven and um they wanted to keep me and get me traditional training but my mom of those like west you know that's kidnapping you got to give her back um <laughs> <laughs> so traditional way they would have kept me but western way my mom got me back and so we ended up moving to portland and my grandfather his father was a chiropractor and a naturopath and had delivered over 1500 babies so he learned about the plants and 
naturopathic medicine and chiropractor from his father. So my grandpa, because I was, you know, straight from the bush and I here in Alaska, I knew what plants to eat, what berries to pick, you know, what to mm -hmm. do. He started teaching me in the Northwest coast about different plants and what I could or could not eat. Cause he knew I would just go out there and start picking stuff. And in that training about plants, he would also teach me about, um, you know, the holistic and naturopathic healing as well. And then they had me reading crazy books when I was eight. Like they had me reading, you know, the I Ching and mm -hmm. uh, herbal home remedies and all this old folk medicine books yeah. and anatomy and physiology books. And um, I really enjoyed them. I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. So I enjoyed that process. So... Yeah, so that's my kind of like my intro to traditional healing. And it's a long answer, but it's it's always been there. How does your work as an ethno-herbalist figure into all this? Oh, well, I love plants. And um, that's actually one of the things that I love to, to teach the most is take people out on the land. Mm -hmm. And I just, I guess I do it, you know, same way. You just show people plants, tell them what they can pick, what they can't pick, how to be a good relative, you know, how to talk to plants and listen. That's a big thing. It's not the talking to plants. It's the learning how to listen. Um, and so I, you know, when I was a teenager, I ran away from all of this because I, teenagers usually rebel against things. Um, and it's part of the developmental cycle anyways, right? Cause you're trying to create your own identity and, and know who you are. Mm -hmm. And so I was away from it from quite a while and I came back to it in my early twenties because I had to, I had, um, health events that were unexplained by Western medicine. And I did two years of hard work with testing and, you know, medicines and all sorts of things in the Western system. And they couldn't fix me and they had no answers for me. And so I finally, I called my grandpa <laughs> mm -hmm. and he sent me a, a couple of books on, on, you know, cleansing and healing the internal organs. And I saw a local herbalist lady who put me on some protocols and she found out, you know, within 30 days that I actually had some very um, intense allergies to milk and wheat and food additives and other things. And so I had to um, work to heal my body in that year. I had lost a hundred pounds, had regained my strength, had um, gotten rid of 
you know, fibromyalgia and all sorts of stuff, you know, like a laundry list of issues had worked through them in that year. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just kind of dove straight in. I dove into essential oils. I dove into herbal books. I dove into, you know, Chinese medicine, Western medicine, herbals, all of it. And voraciously reading and um, talking to my grandpa and doing the work and then getting back out. And of course, you know, through my teens and everything, I picked pl berries, um, but then started getting back to the other plants and rebuilding those relationships with those other plants. So they saved my life and um, they make me who I am. Do you find yourself using certain plants more often? Um. Yeah, I have you know, like everybody has some companion plants that are um, supportive in the way that they need. Mm -hmm. And then there's just base plants that are good to use regularly for everybody. Um, and then there's plants that I only need for short periods of time. So I guess, yes, my plants that I use on a regular basis that are the most kind and supportive I would say have to be uh, nettle mm -hmm. and mint and valerian. And what do those do? Well, nettle is a, it's an amazing plant. Actually, it has some of the most bioavailable plant proteins that you can access. And it also has vitamins and minerals and it has quercetin. And so it reduces inflammation and allergic response in the body as well as building the core strength and health of the system. Uh, it also has um, serotonin because that's why it stings, is there's serotonin hairs on receptors on it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, of course, serotonin helps to balance mood. And um, mint has a cooling effect to the body. It also opens the blood capillaries to the mind and to the extremities, and it helps to relax the round muscles. So, um, you know, like the muscles above and below your stomach, round muscles are, are predominantly just in the GI tract. Um, and mint is uh, cooling to the system, again, anti-inflammatory. And then valerian is um, good at reducing muscle tension, anxiety, insomnia. It helps people to um, move through move through challenges with grace. Mm -hmm. I think that's the best way to put it. So those are those are there's a, there's a, hundreds of amazing plants in Alaska. We live in one of the most profoundly bountiful places on earth and they're all each a blessing. Yeah, it sounds like I need to get myself some of these plants. <laughs> <laughs> I think with the with the pandemic, we could all use some good plants, eh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, something that, that just came to mind is how often do you encounter people who think that traditional healing is just a bunch of snake oil? Oh, all the time. You, you know, at first in my early 20s, I was really worried about what people thought. And you know, back then, they there was a lot of stigma that still existed. A lot of people thought if you talked about traditional healing that you were um, possessed or, you know, you were mentally ill because of their 
their association. So it has this hard history with colonization and assimilation. The colonizing uh, group had to degrade our traditional ways of being, including our medicine people. And they had to degrade our traditional medicine practices so that they could um, promote theirs as being better, right? And getting people to convert and assimilate easier. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that stigmatism is carried in even in our generation today. So there's that. And then there's also the massive amount of ego involved in some of the sciences and medicines who want to have these measures that don't always apply to traditional medicine, you know? So when you talk about harvesting a plant for medicine and it's more potent, if you say prayers and give an offering, like in their mind, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of stigma due to those reasons. And so part of this process is this education. Like I said, when I was in my early twenties, I was afraid to come out as being a traditional healer, even though it's something that was um, an identity that was gifted to me as a child and that was always there to be accessed. Mm -hmm. uh, stepping into it was hard because I had to accept myself for who I was and also not let other people, you know, tear you down. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I quickly realized that I wasn't the only one that experienced the stigma of, in, you know, the naysaying. And so a large part of the work that I've been doing and other people have been doing is education. Mm -hmm. It's all about creating understanding about what this is. Um, and because we went through a real process of assimilation by the Western system, you know, there's things that we had to couch in the spiritual realm so that way it couldn't be debunked by this empirical data, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you couch it in the spiritual realm, then there's a different level of social stigmatizing that happens. And so as we advance and create understanding of who we are, heal these wounds and traumas, start creating relationships in with science that now is proving what we've been saying for a long time, elders and, you know, people who've held the course. We have people like um, Della Keats and Dr. Rita Blumenstein and Alicia Roberts, right? We have these women and men too, who have um, held the tradition close and held the line long enough that we have now gotten to this point where we can accept this inherent birthright, which is ours, um, of being healthy human beings. And what was it like when you eventually embraced being a traditional healer? Um, well, so there's the, um, there's different layers to it, right? So accepting that identity at first, I, I was a little flustered because my grandpa he had a vision and he told me about um, when I'd be older, he saw what I was supposed to be, right? And he told me his vision that he had. And I was kind of overwhelmed because I'm like, how do I get from here to there, right? There was mm -hmm. no um, 
access point for educational models, mentorship models. Um, you know, I started asking elders, people to teach me, and they said, oh, you're too old, or, you know, there's people who want to be traditional healers for lots of reasons. Um, or what I found out was um, several of the people that I had asked, you know, it's because they didn't have a full body of knowledge themselves. And so there was lots of different layers to it. Um, and so I remember feeling very overwhelmed and how do I do this? Right. Mm -hmm. And then just start kind of laying out a course for myself. And that's why I got all the books I could get and started meditating on topics and ask. And what I learned is not to ask somebody to teach me how to be a traditional healer because it's a gift that you get, right, that then needs to be grown. So I learned to just ask about certain things, one question at a time, right? Um, and then that opened the door to learning from all elders. They didn't have to have a title or be a thing, right? Then all your elders are your teachers. Um, and so I started taking college classes and just kind of doing my best to navigate a path that had been overgrown. Um, so kind of breaking trail or cutting trail. And um, then my family had recognized me early on as a traditional healer, right? And my aunties on my mom's side had already known it and accepted me and my grandma had uh i first time i did energy work on her she sighed real big and she says oh just like little grandma which if you remember grandma ajit was the medicine woman yeah and so that was that recognition and acceptance by the family and then the first clinket person outside of the family who recognized me and vouched for me was actually walter porter and um, I worked with him on, on different subjects before he passed. And then Richard Porter, who I have worked with um, out in the Valley for several years on, on different topics, you know, they recognize me. And so it's that, that opposite, the clan, that's really important to get that recognition from. Mm -hmm. And then in the system, the health system, Dr. Rita Blumenstein, I worked with her at the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. And trying to work on um, creating education around our plants, right? So I was able to organize and be co-chair for the Alaska Plants as Food and Medicine Symposium, which started in 2012. And, and I had organized it for four years, bringing people from all over the state together to talk about our traditional plants and help revitalize that knowledge. Um, but in 2011, I started meeting with her every week, you know, on Tuesday at 2.30, and we would sit and talk, and I would ask her questions, and she'd tell stories, and I'd work on her, because by then I was already a certified massage therapist, already did energy work, already did plant work, and all sorts of things. Um, I had a human services degree with counseling, and so I'd work on her, and finally, after a year, I'm like, Rita, <laughs> how, like, how do I get certified as a traditional healer? Mm -hmm. And she just looked at me and she laughed and she laughed <laughs> and she laughed and she's, you know, a little impish woman. And she's like, you already are. I knew you were the first time I met you. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay. <laughs> and so she actually, um, I was the first one that she had ever written a letter for. So she's had over 35 different students. She had only graduated seven 
Um, and she wrote a letter for me. I was the first one she had ever written a letter for. And so she wrote a letter saying, you know, that she recognizes me within the health system as a traditional healer and that people needed to to honor well she didn't say they needed to honor that but basically the letter was that she recognizes this and that i'm able to use that title mm -hmm. and her intent was because she said that i already was a traditional healer what her intent was is that i would have credentials so that i could hold my own in the room with the medical professionals and the scientists and the policymakers. Mm -hmm. and she had enough respect and body of work and lifetime of people recognizing her that they they did accept that title and i have been able to use that title publicly and it was a, an immense gift from her to be able to have that recognition and it's amazing in those systems you know those credentials um and the work that i've been able to do with them and so i'm i'm eternally grateful for that you know, something that you you mentioned a few times was energy work. What is that? Mm, energy work. Well, um, so it's kind of interesting because energy work is one of those things that people like to have stigma about sometimes. But with the Alaska Native Charitable Health Consortium, I was actually, not only did I provide energy work at different times, I was able to teach energy work too through the Doorway to a Sacred Place uh, training for behavioral health providers and first responders in communities. And so we worked for several years and traveled all over the state and we taught talking circles, um, energy work, body work, and uh, healing through traditional application of song, dance, story, and drumming. And it was a wonderful gift to be able to teach people about energy work. So basically, all things, it's pretty simple, right? All things have energy, atoms, <laughs> electrons, neutrons. Um, and we know that those are transferable. So whatever you're sitting with, you're exchanging atoms with it right now, right? And we have um, the knowledge that says different things can affect our, our mood or our physical well-being, our energy levels. So like if we're on Zoom for too long, the blue light and sitting at your computer all day long, right? It, it drains you. Mm -hmm. We also know that going out and being in a forest can invigorate you because you have that exchange of negative ions and that release of um, negative energy, which negative energy could be just stress, anxiety, right? Or emotions. It could be a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so funny because now the science is coming out grounding or earthing, right? You take your feet off uh, or your feet, sorry, your shoes, <laughs> you take your shoes off and you stand bare feet and you like have this exchange of energy between yourself and the ground. And of course, you know, old, old American Indians and Alaska Natives all over kind of shook their head. <laughs> like you guys just figuring this out now. Um, so energy work is just the facilitation of energy and it doesn't come from yourself. It comes from spirit to so you balance yourself. You have to do the work to be healthy in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you also have to do the work to meditate and be an open channel. And so one of the things about traditional healing is you don't, you don't actually go out and heal everybody. 
right? That's not an ego-based activity. You're a facilitator or uh, a guide or a helper. Okay. And the person is you, Cody, and every other person is in charge of healing yourself. And you can ask for assistance from creator or from spirit or God to help heal. And so when I teach energy work, uh, it starts with a, a basic meditation of connecting to the ground, connecting to your higher power and moving that through the body. And so when I'm facilitating energy work with a person, I will go through that meditation and then rub my hands together, which creates friction, right? So basic, it's not like we're working on different laws of physics here. It's all the same stuff. Mm-hmm. So you create friction and you build that energy in the hands and you create, a. it's interesting because you, I don't know if it's static, but you create um, kind of a more sensitivity in that space, probably because there's more blood flow and you've created an intention so your paraperception is more hyper-focused on those on the hands. And you can feel in another person's body where things are out of balance. So some people call it uh, aura. It's just your, your basic energy field, right? Your um, bioelectric field or electromagnetic field even because that's how our bodies work. And when you're sensing that, that, extra, that sensory perception, if you have something that's out of balance, balance in the system, right? Like let's say you injure something in the body, you're going to have increased heat from inflammation Mm -hmm. or increased cool due to lack of blood flow. Like those are, you can perceive those things. So when you're, you've got this abundance of energy in the hands, you're sensing for the spaces that are out of balance, and then you just move through with the intent that God, creator, is going to provide the necessary, whatever it is, because you don't have to clarify, you don't even have to know, but you'd provide whatever is necessary to heal that space. And so you pray for that person and that that facilitation of healing will occur. And so you just move through and it's almost like um, smoothing ruffled feathers is a great way to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so you just work from the head down through the body, over the limbs, and you smooth those feathers. And that's just kind of like the, the base level or, or base clearing that you can work with a person. Um, and then you can go into deeper levels of energy work as well. Well, that's really interesting. At a certain point when you were talking, I was just like looking at my hands, you know, I was just like, okay, <laughs> um, I'm starting to kind of understand this because my mom is a nurse practitioner and she's very into um, holistic medicine as well, just for, for personal reasons. And so, you know, she's interested in like bone broth and, you know, obviously having like a, a positive outlook to things, you know, so there's, so I'm already, I'm right there with you. Awesome. And now, yeah, and there is science behind it. And there's more science being built behind it because um, it works. Right. So how that bone broth, that's our traditional medicine, it's going to have all the core omega fats, that's going to help nourish your cells and your nervous system, it's going to have minerals, that's going to help with this um, 
So calcium and magnesium actually help the muscles to contract or relax. Mm-hmm. And so you start getting into explaining why these things work and it's all there. It's just that the empirical data took so long to catch up that it wasn't sufficient for a period of time, but people had the qualitative knowing of how it works and how beneficial it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that that understanding that's been handed down orally through traditions for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So while I was writing questions for you, I was searching mm-hmm. the Anchorage Museum website for information on you, and I came across some promotional material of a talk you did on traditional healing and coming of age. What do you think is the importance of coming of age ceremonies? Yeah, well, um, we actually just did a, a project with the Anchorage Museum by the, with the North by North uh, exhibit. And Francesca wanted to highlight, you know, women, women of the North. And so it was a really fun project. And I was able to um, actually do multidisciplinary, kind of a multimedia production within, we built a women's house, a, a, a replica. It's not a replica, it's real. I'm really a clinket woman. It's really <laughs> clinket women's house. It's really yeah. cool. Um, so living culture. And we were able to do five talks that were web broadcast, and we were able to do a publication through Chattermarks. So people can actually find more information in uh, the website, the Anchorage Museum website, in the Chattermarks. It's the Women's Rites of Passage, and it was just released um, actually recently. I got it on Valentine's Day, so it was a pretty sweet um, present. So our traditional coming of age ceremonies were set to be in alignment at important stages of growth, whether it was physical maturation or uh, physio, you know, like psychological growth as well. Mm-hmm. And so it, when you start getting into that biological science and stages of psychology and pairing it up with these activities, it just amplifies the power and my reverence for our people in understanding how to build strong human beings, resilient human beings. So this rites of passage, you know, that we have several of them throughout our lifetime. And for this project, we focused on rites of passage. And I actually, for my bachelor's um, at APU, I wrote on the women's rites of passage and focused on Southeast rites of passage specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, because the historians were male and they came from patriarchal systems mm-hmm. and they overlooked women's knowledge. And so when they looked at our menstruation huts, you know, they said they were crude, they were six by six, and they described the activities in very uh, negative ways, right? Um, And it was commonplace at that time that people's perceptions were uh, racist or looked down upon indigenous people. So some of them were very negative. Um, And what they didn't do is they didn't actually talk to women. They didn't actually find out the purpose or intent of these things. 
And so bringing back this knowledge is so important, especially with healing community and healing our people uh, and healing ourselves, you know. So in psychology, Erickson talks about the process of going away and coming back. And so as you transform your identity and you go away from a community and then you come back, it allows you to be changed, mm. right? And so if you're in a community static, then the expectations somebody has of you one day are pretty much going to be the same expectations that they have the next and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the outcomes is you have this very identifiable transition in your status from being a youth into being a young adult, right? So that's facilitated in that way. And then the other aspect is a strengthening of self or a strengthening of character, because usually these rites of passage, uh, yeah, there's fasting involved and seclusion involved for young men. Uh, there's also journeys involved and you get a hyper condensed download of information from the uh, family members who are facilitating the rites of passage. So if you're a female, it'd be your grandmas and your aunties and your mother and sisters and the wise women in the community. And they will start to download this information that you wouldn't have gotten as much before because you were a child, right? And mm -hmm. now you're returning into a young woman. So now you are become part of this uh, different identity and growth stage and accepted into this new role. And so you get this precious knowledge that's given to you. And so you have the strengthening of character, download of information and transition into your new identity. And then when you come out of the rites of passage, the community celebrates, right? Because um, birth and regeneration are so important especially to indigenous cultures, you know, that that sacred time of menstruation is that understanding of cycles and the renewal of life and the continuation of a community and of a nation. Mm -hmm. And so it is revered and it is sacred and you're treated that way. And don't we all need to be reminded of being sacred beings? And don't we all need to be celebrated and supported and loved and facilitate this transformation of self? So uh, the application is not exactly the same anymore um, because our people traditionally, you know, Dora, Nora Downhauer said, they don't make them like they used to. And it's not to be derogatory. It's just we don't experience the same levels of hardship that we used to. And so the concepts still are valid and they still remain. So right now, you know, with my uh, caste standing or social standing because of my family, not because of um, what I have done, but because I inherited that, you know, traditionally I would have gone into seclusion for one year. And maybe when I was 13, that would have been able, the family could have facilitated that if that was something that was part of the tradition. But now in the modern age, I can't go to seclusion for one year. You know, heck, I can hardly get an hour to myself sometimes with the kids, right? So what is it that we need to bring with us? Well, we need to bring with us that process of community supporting an individual's growth.
Uh, we also need to bring with us the understanding that fasting and seclusion meditation is highly beneficial to the being. And we need to remember how to celebrate each other again. That's that's great. You know, that does it for all my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I just hope that, you know, people take the time to care for themselves instead of making it this thing that you go and do uh, and schedule in self-care every you know two weeks or however that works. Mm-hmm. But I would like people to view the care of themselves as the best way to build community and to work through their physical and emotional lessons with compassion and grace. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Music was produced by Keezy Baby.